This is Distributed Conversations. We talk about the frictionless future using blockchain, connecting us to accelerated progress and richer lives. Here's your host, Warren Whitlock. Hi, Warren Whitlock. Welcome to another episode of Distributed Conversations. Hey, today I got a very interesting guest about a topic I care deeply about. I hope you do too. How to present a good new company and get the right kind of attention. This is Dennis Lewis. He wrote a book called Behold the Cryptopreneurs. He's the CEO of ICO Success, and we're going to get into it, so stick around. Hi, Dennis. Welcome to the show. Hey, Warren. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, looking forward to a good conversation here. Great. Yeah, first off, your company is ICO Success, and anyone that's been through the uh, rise and fall of the ICOs in 2017 and especially those of us living in the U.S., know that that title can be good and bad. Is, are you still doing ICOs or what does ICO success do? Well, that's a great question. That's kind of why I wrote the book. I feel like the road that wave, the big wave of ICOs, raised a lot of money, helped a lot of projects. But I'm kind of frustrated with how things are going in the industry. And I think that we As a group, we've kind of lost our way and we've forgotten that projects need to solve problems. They've got to actually build businesses that attend to clients and make things better for people. And so, yeah, we still help projects, but we're really picky. I talked to a lot of startups because I did a lot of startup kind of work in the past. And mostly I'm just fascinated by them. So I I go to conferences, I meet a lot of people, like to hear what they have to say. And there's two kind of ways to approach it. You get the kids with an idea that they think their idea is so unique, the whole world's going to flock to them. And it's always in the execution, not the idea. People matter. But then if you don't have experience, how can you tell? And then you get the other people who have been through four or five startups. That's what they do. And or they're like supported by a big company or an industry they've worked in for some time. And those usually show more promise. It seems like in 2017, everybody got together and said, let's do one of these things because the the tokens are going to be worth so much. I had friends tell me they stopped taking cash because the tokens were so much more valuable. You know, they take, you know, 100,000 in tokens and it'd be worth 2 million within a month. Those days are past. Anytime the currency is growing that fast, it's got to be a bubble (laughs) by definition. And the SEC's made some rulings on ICOs. While, while actually ICOs went up in 2018, not so much in the U.S. And I've struggled with what to call them. If you change the name of the company, what would you consider besides ICO? I think I would change it to blockchain success, to be honest. It's not about the token. It's not about the speculative value of on an exchange. It's got to be about fundamentals. It's got to be about building businesses that help people, that solve problems like healthcare and problems like banking and problems like supply chain management, real stuff that happens in the real world. And sometimes it's the boring stuff. When somebody's coming up with a way to speed up distribution in a supply chain thing and their customers are going to be enterprise, those get funded well, do well, have a lot of sales, have huge customers. And you got to know what you're doing, you know, in that kind of logistics stuff. But there's so many places to actually support existing big business that, you know, I think a lot of people overlook. They want to come up with a consumer app that everybody will have on their iPhone. While there's plenty of room for growth in that sector, too, it's not quite the same as, hey, how about solving healthcare? 
Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, is that I feel like we're stuck staring at our belly buttons. This industry is pretty small. There's only, what, 20, 30 million people in the world that actually know anything about blockchain or cryptocurrency. What about the other 7 billion that are out there? I mean, why aren't we solving their problems? Why aren't we delivering on the promises that the technology can do instead of worrying about charting and technical whiz-bang consensus algorithms, which are all great and I think it's fine, but that's not what's going to make this industry deliver in the real world. I just got a request for an interview this morning. And usually when they ask, you're not really sure whether they're asking you to be on their podcast or me produce the podcast and have them on as guests. Either way, I'm open to whatever. You know, I think every piece of good content that gets made is helping the world. And I just assume be on somebody else's podcast. So then I looked and sure enough, they were asking me to be on. And the pitch was, we have a blankety blank level two new innovation in the I'm not even sure what industry it was. And I think what it meant was coders were going to be able to code a little bit better. And my response was, you know, I want to talk to somebody that's interesting, that's doing something that's going to change the world. I don't care that you have an incremental change in the speed of compiling code (laughs) or whatever that was. I know it was level two, so it must be better than level one. But other than that, it was mumble jumble to me. I understood all the words. And if pressed within a quick Google search, I could have found out exactly what they were talking about and at least understood it on a technical level. But you know, I'm saying, what does my audience really care about? My audience cares about making the world a better place. And I pick blockchain because it reduces friction and allows us to use AI and basically the machine learning part of that large data. So yesterday I listened to a talk by somebody that's collecting data in the pet industry. And a question from the audience was, what about privacy? They said, we're working on pets. We have no privacy concern. Loved that idea. I'm going like, great. Anything you want to do, try it out on cats before humans, because no cats are hurt in, in the experiment. And we know so little about cats. We haven't done the brain scans. It was funny. She then said, well, you know, so little research has been done. And I'm thinking like, yeah, I could make a strong argument against a lot of cat brain, brain scans. There are a few cats out there that have a lot more followers on Instagram than I do. There definitely are. And then what you see is in the social, getting it back to things that you and I care about, social and marketing and the channels we see every day, there's so much data there on do people like cats more than green cats? I'm going to say yes, because very few green cats out there. And what time of day do cats like to eat and what do cat lovers buy? I went to Super Zoo yesterday, for which is Pat pet retailing. And it's just immense the amount of time and effort and money go into it. And me as a person who just trips over the pet toys in my house, what color they are and what they are don't seem to matter. By the way, I came home with only one new pet toy for the dog, a nice rugged chew toy, and it was destroyed within 10 minutes. I think my dogs can do it in a few seconds. So I think that's, that's, that's about it. Yeah. And so my daughter posted that along with a picture of a dog roaring like a lion, GIF. And so, uh, you know, you go right through things, but there's just immense amount of data. And I like picking on pets here because it's a subject we can't get into privacy, but we can find out on whether or not people take their pets to a vet. That means they're a better buyer. Now, some point you cross over into people, you get into some privacy issues, but the treasure trove of data just in that 
that we can do a better job of instead of seeing that somebody went to a certain web page and then sticking banner ads up for the next six months, I still get step stool ads because I visited a industrial product site while trying to buy a step stool a year and a half ago. <laughs> I ended up buying one on Amazon. So I'll give them credit. They didn't know whether or not I'd made a purchase. They just knew I was shopping on their site. Getting it on every screen I went to for the next two months was almost bearable. I complained a lot. Then after that, like, what do they think? Someday I'm going to get the urge to buy a bunch of step stools. They don't know anything else about me. They did. They know that I'm tall. I don't need a lot of step stools. And by the way, I'm buying it mostly because I have problems sitting down on a floor and getting back up. So a step stool allows me a portable something if I need to, anything from work on the car to get to the bottom of the refrigerator. <laughs> you know, it's like, is that what a step stool manufacturer needs to know? Maybe. I've heard a, a long one on the robo vacuums where the typical buyer is a 30 to 40 year old woman for time saving of having the robo vacuum. And also typically it would be in somebody building a household, not a retiree. And then she says, I got mine because my husband saw that our dog, when we moved to Oregon, remote, opposite of what a retiring normal would do. They moved from Arizona to Oregon. And then it was a man and he's 67 years old and he was buying it because the thought of having to get a broom and sweep up himself was like, I get in trouble if I don't do that. I've got to do something. So we bought a robo vacuum. Now, how do you put that psychographics? into any kind of group and say, we're going to run ads to 67-year-old white men who are retired. And moving from Arizona to Oregon, you know? Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh you only give me people who have moved to a retirement community. No, they did the opposite. Right. Um, you know? So there's none of us grouped together. Um, my big problem is with the millennials, that we call millennials all the same. I have five kids born between 1980 and 1988. They are different people. My kids grew up with me. They're, you know, are all the same family, but their buying patterns, uh, where they work, what they do, completely different people. That only spans the first half of millennials or Gen Y, actually. Now they're calling millennials anybody that's digital first. By the way, by the psychographics, everything but you're born, I'm a millennial. I'm thinking digital first and I've been doing it longer than most of them have been alive. Yes, I do recall an area where there wasn't any computers or internet in my life, but so what? You know, I've had more of it than they have. So I can be reached in the same way. Now, I like different music. I have different buying habits. I don't want to be grouped in a millennial demographic group, but digital first is something. It's a trend that's going on for everybody. And yes, Gen Y has a lot of it. Gen Z or whatever they're calling them after that do. So I had to go back and examine baby boomers. We're not all alike. The baby boomers had a lot of trends of the 60s, the disco in the 70s, and minivans in the 80s. And we did a whole lot of stuff together as a group or so. We changed society. But that had more to do with what was going on in the world than the fact that we were coherent as a group. And today, we now start trying to get very coherent on these things. And I think, like, so a few things. You know, I'm not going to sell women's clothing to men. You, know? <laughs> you never know. You might sell a pet. Yeah, but I may go after certain men if that was my product niche, which is okay. Nothing about somebody's decision to wear a dress. That's their choice. It's not a problem. 
And so, yeah, do whatever. Have these niches, and then you can make a whole lot of money in a niche. I'm advising a company right now where they have a mailing list that they mail to. Uh, they've got up, they have millions, but active mailing list is 560,000. And we are seeing a much higher EPC earnings per click out of the smaller mailings. So if you mail 500,000, you're probably going to make more money than if you mail 50,000 or 5,000. But the earnings per click skyrocket as we niche and talk about something they care about. And it could be the same product to a different niche. It's just how you talk about it. You can use different language. And we didn't expect the EPC to be higher. They were tracking nothing. So that was one of the first things we did, trying to figure out how much do we make when we send somebody a click. And then, of course, you know, let's focus on the ones that are making more money and grow in that way. And it's so fascinating to look because as we got the spreadsheet of the last 100 mailings and started sorting them by niche and some other things like that, because they were just in a long list, a lot of mailings. And of course, we were looking at high APCs. But then when we grouped them by what niches we were mailing in, we found out, oh, we've mailed three times to this niche, but one was a general mailing that only was trying to identify people in the niche, or we were doing it by affiliate products. And so one was a general mailing, and the other two were to the best niche for it. And the difference was like a multiple of three or four on average. And so what does that mean? It means we save 90% of the cost of sending the emails. When you have millions of emails, you have to factor every mailing cost you quite a bit of money. But insignificant amount of money to mail 5,000 or 10,000. And if they're your hot list for something, you focus on that. And then we started looking how many of those there were. We go like, we'll never get to them all. I can't even estimate how many niches there are. How many categories of books are there on Amazon? And it's just fascinating what we can do. And now you can target whether or not somebody's been on the site for a while. We were at customer contact week. It used to be called call center world. There's a branding change that's interesting. I, it's clever that they came up with another CCW for it. But I was at that recently, and I got to asking every booth, like, how many people still pick up the phone and call a call center? No one could tell me for sure how many people went to the website and then to the call center, but they're collecting the data so they can do that. Because you know how it is. You go search on a website. You maybe find the answer, but it doesn't seem quite right. You need to ask something else. And after 20 minutes of searching on the website, you give up and call and wait another 20 minutes to talk to somebody. Then you got to give them all your information. The worst is banks, but banks have to do that for security. I don't want just anybody looking at my bank account, but they're actually getting better at it over the last 20 years. So that if you call, you know, a manufacturer that makes a product, I did, I did a pressure cooker recently. We bought a pressure cooker. It lasted about nine months and stopped working. We got an air code. We could not find what the air codes meant in multiple searches on Google. And this became like a project just to see what I could do. Because long since the 50 bucks I spent on it was long past consideration. So hour later, I get on the phone with them. I've waited. I've been put through the IVR time and again, automated, no answer. And have you visited our website? I finally get a hold of somebody and say, well, you can send it back to us. It's $35 plus shipping and handling. And we will repair whatever we need to. You go like, so why does it matter whether I get an E1 or E2? It doesn't. You get any air code, the machine's toast. (laughs) I'm not going to spend 50 bucks on a $50 purchase to get another one. And I got it on sale. Actually, replacing it cost me a little bit more. But 
wasn't about my time. It was about, I didn't feel good towards the company. I didn't want to ever buy one of their products again. And, but that's rare now. Most of the time you get a hold of somebody. And so the question I was asking at CCW was, how many people call first? And they're saying it's down. It's only 70% now. And others were saying, I got as high as 85 and as low as 65. But around 70 was the mean of people I asked. And I go like, well, how many of those people tried the web first? They couldn't figure it out. They're getting very much better at this. But wouldn't it be cool if when the customer contact person picked up the phone, they knew you'd been on the website for 15 minutes. They knew which model you were talking about. And they could be a help or even not a help. The, the answer they gave me was acceptable. But if I got it in five minutes from a person who seemed to care of the, of the process I was going through, I would have been inclined to say, well, yeah, can you just send me a replacement? Here's my credit card. And instead of like, oh, I'm, I'm screwed is basically how I felt. The example, the story you're telling is a perfect example of what's going on in the blockchain industry. You're talking about a real business that is losing some business because they're probably not doing their customer service as good as they could, but they're serving a product. Right. Oh, it's a very popular model. Yeah. Yeah. So look at it the the other way around. What's going on in our industry is we've spent the last few years basically giving 23-year-olds millions and millions of dollars, more than they need, more than they know what to do for with. And they're buying condos in Belize. And a lot of times they're fighting between, I've, I've lived this experience on the inside of projects. I've seen how raising too much money too soon is bad for the projects. Projects that are serious, that, that want to do things right, the model is wrong. We need a model that helps align the interests between real projects that want to build real solutions and don't want to create vaporware. Right. I mean, we got off talking about particular circumstances. Well, I did. That's what I do. When we take a look at this, the companies I've been asked to advise, and I've talked to many dozens and actually advised a more than I should have took on for the, we want you as an advisor, we'll give you some tokens. And okay, fine, I'll sign the paper and you can use my picture on your site. And I went through that. And now I realize that they just aren't going to make it If their business plan is, let's build for a really good ICO, IEO, whatever you call it, stock offering, even somebody raising money in a traditional fashion through angel rounds and VCs, it's absolutely true that if you have 10,000 people on your Telegram group, investors like that more than 10 or 100, but that's going to attract their attention. That's not going to really build any kind of a market. If you have 10,000 people who are dying to invest more in your company and spread the word, that's a huge resource. But if you have 10,000 people who you got to sign up because of an airdrop, it's nothing. It does not change the world and may help in a launch. But I have seen where somebody put all their focus on that and then they come out, especially with these exchange offerings and some of the things people are doing today. If you launch something on an exchange and it falls 99% in value the first day, you're really screwed. You don't have the credibility to go back and do it again. You've got real investors who put up real money and they're screwed. And what are you going to do? You can't go back to the well. And I've seen that happen with good companies and good concepts. So very important to build a strong foundation. 
And also very rare that somebody with a good tech idea, which all blockchain startups seem to be be there. There's a whole other world, by the way, if you really go looking for blockchain and what's happening, do Google searches on blockchain innovation or blockchain in supply chain or anything like that. IBM is going to be at the top of the list. They're doing huge things. And there's a lot of other companies like them. I'll fully disclose I'm an IBM futurist. I've done some work for them. So they're going to be my example, but they're also the biggest. <laughs> I worked for them as well. So I worked a long time ago for IBM. So I'll second your motion. Yeah. And none of what I did had anything to do with blockchain because it was mostly a few years ago. And we're actually talking about Watson and the marketing of that and just huge innovation coming. And of course, they're working with the people like treasuries of countries and large companies, maintaining the status quo. If it's not a $100 million idea, those guys don't get into it, right? They don't want, if their idea of small business is the under $100 million, I, I think. I'm exaggerating because I really don't know what their definition is. But there's a lot of stuff going on. And what I see is like, if you invest in blockchain, the technology is going to continue to grow. And if you pick 10 startups with some research, pretty good chance that, you know, you're going to break even or do better than that. It's not going to be on who has the hottest token. And it may not ever be again that just investing in a currency will do you good. You know, I'm holding a little bit of Bitcoin, but if it goes up, I have nothing to do with that. And I'd rather be looking at where is there a company with a good idea that needs to get tokens? For instance, the one I was mentioning before, we're going to tokenize the rewards program connected. We get paid a lot in advertising and tracking advertising into these huge data bank are things that are going to get very big. If we have a little piece of that, great. If investors love that that's what it is, even better. But it's an existing company, not a brand new concept that we're coming up with. I think there's so many like that, that needing to invest on a kid with a dream is just not needed anymore. Nothing against kid with the dreams, by the way. Zuckerberg was a kid with a dream. In my chapter of the book, I mentioned, I think that that mythology, though, has actually done more damage than it has good. Ah, Mythology is a good word for it because mythology does not mean it's not true. And really, if you are above average in height and you start at an early age, it's really true that you can get picked up from a ghetto and play in the, the NBA. I wouldn't you suggest that little people dream of being in the NBA, but nothing wrong with the kid dreaming of being in the NBA. But at some point, you got to do the stats and say one in 20 million kids dreaming of being in the major leagues ever make it. And the truth is that building a sustainable long-term business takes more than just that disruptive dream. It takes a lot of experience. It takes boring stuff like accounting and knowing how to build a marketing plan and knowing how to go to market and knowing how to do so many other things that business owners do that we do every day. And that's what we need to be promoting. And that's why I wrote the book. And that's what a cryptopreneur really is, is somebody who understands that it's more than tech And it's more than token. It's got to be about solving problems. I love the title of the book, Behold the Cryptopreneur. But again, crypto is getting to be a misunderstood small part of blockchain. Uh, Your ICO success. And I'm not pointing this out like, oh, no, you did it wrong because we all did. I have a blogging site called CoinHash, of which this podcast came out of. And I dislike the name from the day we started. And it's coinhash.co. 
CoinHedge.com ended up being somebody that had an ICO and wasn't giving good customer service to their people. I know because they started sending me messages and it's never taken off because I just don't like that idea of coin. I helped produce a conference called Coin Agenda and Bit Angels, both terms that were thought of in 2013. We have big discussions over what it is. They used to hold an ICO conference at every event. Now we're going to be holding a kind of a startup contest. But, you know, it's not just for startups. It's for usually people that are raising money or have a token in what they're doing. And that's because the investors are at the conference and they want to know about these companies. And many a discussion over what to call it. I think we all have that problem about where I get ICO news or Coindesk or, you know, those kind of names and things. By the way, try looking for a domain name with ICO or Coin. Right in that blockchain is the industry and whether or not there may be some different thing that we're not saying blockchain, because I know we could have an argument over whether or not other distributed ledgers will work better. I'm a really big fan of Ricardian contracts which are better than just smart contracts because they allow for a whole lot more detail. But yeah, anything that has an escrow is going to move to digital encrypted open protocols that at least the parties that need to see it can all refer back and say, we decided that that day. And that's such a fundamental change in business. The other one I like is that they're calling it triple entry accounting. And double entry accounting made the modern world possible and single entry accounting made business possible, keeping a log or a ledger. Double entry accounting made it so that larger groups could communicate and trust each other. And triple entry accounting, I think, is going to be just as big of a boon. And like, I don't know if it's next 500 years or when we give up on triple and go to quadruple, if we ever need to or whatever there else. But what I, more than anything, it's trust. And if the trust you're building is we've got a token coming out, you don't have much of a story to tell. And I don't care if you have innovations of a million things you're going to do. It's got to be more than come look at our token because we built the greatest XYZ solution. I totally agree. That's the point. It's got to be about making the world a better place for people. We need to be addressing healthcare and voting and democracy and so many other topics that we can be using this technology to actually promote change in the world. And those are the projects that the cryptopreneurs are going to be focused on. They can't be focused on, is this going to make a market cap of a billion dollars on coin market cap? That, that seems like a really silly conversation. You can be part of somebody else's thing. You can be working on multiple projects at once. All things I've seen done where, you know, a CTO has a good full-time job doing what he's doing. He's got a side gig and he's CTO of a startup and doesn't have to do very much at the beginning. All great things. But the fact that you're bringing together, often I'll be approached by somebody and they've got maybe a lawyer and a whole bunch of tech people. And they come to me and they have a CMO even sometime. But you can look at the CMO's resume and see they're going to have to replace the time. I've got a friend that does business development and consulting on it. And he's basically the virtual VP of sales or whatever you call that. And he charges quite a bit of money. So you need to have some funding before you even talk to him. But it's the same thing every time. They've gone through multiple VP of sales, director of whatever, you know, marketing people, and they're just not cutting it. And sometimes it's experienced people who just don't understand the industry or they're splitting their time between multiple projects. 
And these guys know what to do. They've got the network and they know the VCs. So the VCs, when they decide to fund somebody, but I've been amazed to see how often that the Series A round ends up being a lot of money to develop in marketing. And some of the benchmarks they're looking for is, can you get a million people to download the app? And again, you're back into that. Is it really a million people downloading the app or do you need 100,000 people using the app, which is a better goal? Obviously the latter, but if you're going for another round of money, that larger number is a nice thing to report. But once you get into really building a business, you've got to think beyond that. If I was just talking to people with an enjoyable conversation like we'd have, my program would be nothing but marketing professionals. I see that you focused on it enough to write a book. That's why I wanted to bring you on and talk to you. I think that makes you worthy of consideration on anybody's short list of who they need to talk to. And I think that's the way to go. Having some kind of focus means we're looking at a niche. I've chosen blockchain over AI and 5G and a lot of other things I'm passionate about. But and so I'll talk to somebody that's 5G and blockchain. I don't want to talk to somebody who thinks they can do 5G without blockchain or I love data, but what good would it do to talk about data if you're not talking about putting it in a way that it can be used? Just one more thing about a person I met yesterday. She said a lot of what she does is still on Excel spreadsheets. And I'm going like, man, you need blockchain. You need to build something for what you want to do. By the way, her business is not blockchain. She's in the pet business. And I made a note to follow up with her and find out what she needs, maybe make an introduction. One thing she said, though, was, Anybody starting a business today or planning for the future has got to be looking at the data and the data has to be on blockchain. Just makes sense. And again, not blockchain as some kind of trademark name, but blockchain meaning distributed ledger system of some sort, not necessarily with tokens. I think we're going to tokenize everything farm to table back, man, get the idea that they're going to be able to tell you exactly which cage caught the shrimp that you're eating. And no future show coming up with an ag tech guy that has explained a lot of that to me and what they're doing in Thailand to install a lot of, you know, which plant and which row at least something was cultivated in and they can see strains. I see, show me a graph of a map of a plot. This one was from Oregon and you could see they're growing pot cannabis and for CBD oil. And they could tell that one row was starting to have a problem. And they could do remedial steps to help the plants before they waited six weeks and found out that the plants were dead. That just blew my mind, which is why he's on, on a show soon. But great. Let's get to the selling part. Where can we find you? And your book's on Amazon, right? The book is on Amazon. Behold the Cryptopreneurs. Anybody can go to Cryptopreneurs.club and you can download the first four chapters for free. That was a good place to start. So cryptopreneurs.club and anybody interested in talking about their project, icosuccess.com. Great, great. This interview came to be by you reaching out about your book on LinkedIn as we're connected there. And boy, there's nothing like just connecting with people and expecting serendipity to happen. If you're looking for more serendipity, connect with me online. Twitter at Warren Whitlock. My LinkedIn profile is actually the LinkedIn slash in slash books because I've done a lot of book promotion in the past. So that's my title there, but Warren Whitlock just about anywhere. And I always love hearing from anybody. So uh, please like, subscribe, share the show, tell people about it. 
and be sure to tag me because, you know, I do my best to reward anybody that does. But I look at that as just great networking. As we help each other, all boats are lifted. I'm guessing then, Dennis, you and I are not destined to be hiring each other or doing any kind of business. But knowing you, I feel like both our networks will do better and where they cross even exponentially better in ways we may never understand. So true. So true, Warren. I totally agree. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, that's it for another uh, Distributed Conversations. Thank you very much, Warren, for having me on. You have been listening to Distributed Conversations with Warren Whitlock. Please share and like. To subscribe, visit distributedconversations.com.